Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 37 of the podcast. Today I'm going to attempt to summarise my thoughts on the first two seasons of Star Trek Discovery, in the lead up to beginning season 3 next episode. To start with, I'll share some thoughts on season 1 that I recorded about a year ago on a YouTube channel, and then we'll delve into season 2. So I'll tell you right up front that I enjoyed this series. It did have some flaws, and I will be talking about them later on, but for me overall this was a positive experience. So I was really anticipating this series when it was first announced. TV had changed quite a lot since we last had Star Trek on TV. They they tend to have shorter seasons now, so you're not going to get those filler episodes. And let's be honest, Star Trek has had filler episodes in the past. Uh, Modern TV generally has uh, much more highly serialised storytelling, which I really like. And of course, modern visual effects. And I was really keen to see what Star Trek could look like with a modern modern budget and modern visual effects. Now when you watch the show, uh, the first thing you notice is just how beautiful it looks. Uh, the CGI, the set design, the costumes, you know, the fact that it's shot in high definition. The, the show looks fantastic visually. I quite liked the new uniforms. Uh, setting aside anything about canon or anything like that, um, visually, I think they look really cool. I think it's a logical progression from the Enterprise uniforms through to the USS Kelvin, which did exist in the Prime Timeline, um, through to Discovery. And it kind of works as a pre-TOS uniform, apart from the cage. And of course, we'll see what they do with that in Season 2 anyway. So, yep, the uniform works, no issues there. So Michael Burnham is the lead character of this show. And she's an interesting lead. She's got quite a a character journey from uh, tragedy in childhood through to growing up on Vulcan and almost becoming like a Vulcan and then gradually rediscovering her humanity as she goes. And added to all of that is the, the extra arc of her mutiny early on and then her kind of gradual road to redemption. So, yeah, some good character development for her across the series. This is the first Star Trek show to actually have a protagonist that is not the captain. This was an interesting idea. I don't know quite how well they've pulled off the concept, how well it's working. Star Trek Discovery has a bit of a lower decks feel to it. Uh, We've actually never seen the chief medical officer or the chief engineer. Now, these people should be in meetings. They don't have to be the focus of the show, but but they should be seen. So, th- there's an awkwardness there. I think that Brian Fuller had some clear ideas of what he wanted to do with Michael Burnham's character. But then when he left the show and new showrunners took over, I'm not sure they quite knew what to do with her, or how to tell a Star Trek story with a non-captain lead. Star Trek has always been an ensemble show. Uh, the original series was a little bit different, that was basically a trio of Kirk, Spock and McCoy, with Kirk being a clear protagonist among the three. Sometimes the attempts to make Michael central to the story felt a little bit forced. 
Saru is awesome. Right off the bat, he was one of my favourite characters on this show. Uh, his look is really cool with the makeup, and uh, they give the actor special shoes to suggest that his species has hooves instead of feet. So that gives him kind of an awkward gait as he walks, and of course he's a lot taller than everyone else. Um, Doug Jones is a tall bloke anyway. Um, there, there was a lot of alienness to him, which I appreciated and enjoyed. Saru's personality and his growth was kind of cool. Uh, he's a he's a friendly guy, nice nice guy to be around. Um, he starts off in that first episode very timid and very much defined by his species' uh, ability to sense danger and death and being ruled by fear. But he has a lot of growth over the season in, in terms of learning not to be held back by his fear to an extent, but also his growth as a command officer, being very uncertain early on about his ability to lead. And then towards the end where we, we see him in an acting captain situation and really, um, like, I was just cheering Go Saru in that moment because he just exemplified um, what I think makes a great Star Trek captain. So that was a lot of fun to see Saru's development. Um, great character. Doug Jones is, is a really cool actor. Quite well suited to playing aliens uh, in that he, he is quite tall and he's so expressive that um, I can see why he's often been cast in those kinds of roles, because he just does it so well. Uh, and for anyone to be able to emote the way he does under all that rubber, that's incredible. Another favourite character was Cadet Tilly. Uh, she brings a lot of fun humour into the show, but it's very much character-based humour, which is the kind of humour I like. If humour isn't entrenched in character, then it tends to take me out of the story. But this didn't, and... Yeah, just, she brings a lot of life to the ship. I mean, there's, there's a lot of dark stuff happening in this show. A lot of the characters are in dark places, and I'm cool with that. Um, I quite enjoyed the tone of the show. I like a serious story. But Tilly does bring a bit of um, brightness, which, which is good. And it does help to make it feel Star Trek. It doesn't have to all be light and fluffy. Uh, by no means, I'm, I'm not a, it's all got to be lighthearted type of person. But, but a little bit of that uh, it can be good. Now at first, I wasn't so sure about the character of Stamets. He's very prickly and kind of grumpy and just the opposite of Saru. Just not the kind of person you'd really want to be around. And to be fair, there is some of that as an aspect to his character. But early on, he was just especially prickly. And I think a lot of this is actually because of Lorca. Stamets is very much a pure science kind of guy. And... He's had his research co-opted for military purposes, and now he's on this ship fighting the Klingon war. It's not what he wants to be doing. It's not where he wants to be. And so there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes from that. And then he clearly does not get on with Captain Lorca at all. Lorca is always at him and poking and prodding at him and not treating him with much respect. So I think that is a cause of most of the prickliness we see when we first meet him. And as the season goes on, we see other sides of Stamets, and I did warm up to him a lot more as a character as the show went on. Now, speaking of Lorca, he's a very different kind of Star Trek captain than we've seen before. And I think the fact that the captain is not the protagonist of the show allowed them to actually do some stuff with this character they couldn't have done with any of their other major captains because they were the heroes of the show to an extent. 
Lorca was a much edgier kind of captain. And I'm cool with that. Not everyone in the Star Trek universe has to be a model citizen. And there's a lot of stuff in his backstory with the, the loss of his previous ship, the Baran, that I think explains kind of who he is and, and where he's coming from and, and the fact that maybe he's not a good person. Uh, we do see, you know, he, he, he is a good captain. He, he has the ability to, to lead others and to get out of them what he needs to get out of them. And he does some good things in the show. But then some other stuff happens and you go, oh, I'm just not sure about this Lorca guy. Now, they did something with this character later on the show to kind of explain all of this. And it was cool what they did, and I quite enjoyed it. I'm not sure it was actually necessary. I was quite happy to just accept that Lorca is just an edgier kind of captain. And it, it would have been legitimate to just leave it that way. But what they did was cool too, and it did very much explain why he's not your traditional Starfleet, Boy Scout kind of character. So yeah, I enjoyed it, but I don't think it, they had to do what they did. And that brings me to the character of Ash Tyler. Now, the writers explained that they were going to use this character to do an exploration of post-traumatic stress disorder. This guy had been a prisoner of war, held by the Klingons. He had a lot of stuff to deal with as a result of that. And when I heard this, um, I thought that was great. I thought, yeah, this is going to be a really uh, in-depth, serious exploration of this very, very important topic. Um, and I thought that was cool. What they ended up doing with this character, again, was... They took it in a twisty direction, and they, they did something different. Now, in, in a way, I felt that what they did there detracted from their original, what they said about exploring PTSD. And I thought that was a real shame. Now, what they did, again, was interesting, and a lot of cool kind of things have happened from that. But, you know, I, I, I felt like I didn't get that exploration of PTSD that we were promised. Alright, so let's talk about the plot of the season. There are two main plots going on in Season 1 of Discovery. There's the Klingon War, and then there's the Mirror Universe plot. You hear grumbling from, from some Star Trek fans saying, you know, Star Trek is not about war. Uh, why are they doing war in Star Trek? Now, of course, Star Trek can and has done war, and it's done war very, very well. And for that, I'll just direct you to Deep Space Nine. I don't think they handled war as well in Discovery as they did in Deep Space Nine, which kind of raises the question, why are you going to do something we've already done, but not do it as well? The resolution to the war plot was kind of weakly done, I thought. The last two episodes of the season um, had, had issues. I don't think either of them were great episodes. They had a lot of problems, and it was a fairly weak resolution to the whole thing. That said, we did get some interesting stuff coming out of the war. We got some interesting characters like Laurel, and that has continued to move on in interesting directions. So the Mirror Universe, I thought, was a much better plot than the Klingon War. Now, the Mirror Universe itself is a bit of a silly concept, really. The idea that an alternate universe where pretty much everyone, carbon copy, is there, the same people are all alive, which means their parents must have married the same person, and it's very similar, but just a bit different and a bit darker. It, it's a bit absurd, really, if you start thinking about it logically, which is why there's always been a bit of a 
kind of a, a comic element to the mirror universe. Now what they did here, they portrayed it in a dark and sinister way that I found very emotionally believable. So I thought that was a really cool take on the mirror universe. Yes, it's a silly idea, but they really did something with it and they took it seriously and it was cool. And there was a really epic finale to this particular plot arc. Now, some fans felt that they they lingered a little too long in the Mirror Universe. Um, I don't agree with that personally. I like the fact that they took their time. Alright, I'm going to talk about some favourite episodes now. Starting with an episode called Lethe. Now, this is really interesting because I credit this episode with making a significant contribution to deepening uh, the character of Spock, his arc, particularly the arc of his relationship with his father, Sarek. Now, what's interesting is that it really adds something to that arc, and Spock does not appear in the episode. I think Lethe really nicely bookends that whole relationship. So, we get some backstory that really explains what's going on between Spock and Sarek, and the reasons for it. So, now you can look at, at this from Lethe through to Journey to Babel, and then on to Star Trek 2, 3, and 4. It's just this really nice arc that goes from beginning to end and they've just closed it off so well. So I really credit Lethe in, in adding to the Star Trek mythos. I think this episode was the first time they really did that. Uh, on the other side of this episode, we have some interesting character stuff going on with Lorca, some development of his character, and it introduces Admiral Cornwell and the relationship that she has with Lorca. Uh, some really cool stuff, some, some pretty dark stuff there. Um, there were times watching this half of the episode, I almost felt like I was watching Battlestar Galactica. Um, but some really cool development there, uh, which I really enjoyed. Another favourite episode was one called Despite Yourself. Now, this was the introduction to the Mirror Universe plot. So it's the episode where we first find ourselves in the Mirror Universe, and we start to get an understanding of Discovery's take on this. Uh, this interesting new visual stuff we get to see some new Mirror Universe uniforms. Uh, lots of investment in that by, by the show. This episode was also important for Ash Tyler's character and his arc. And this episode does something truly shocking with one of the characters. And when that happened, uh, it got an audible exclamation out of me. Like, I was shocked. My goodness, they're really doing this. That, that just happened. Um, so that was a big moment. That was a, a, a bit of a, a shock. And the last favourite episode I want to talk about is What's Past is Prologue. And this was the epic finale to the Mirror Universe plot. And again, they did some interesting things with character. And there was a big epic showdown here. Now, I, I think I credit this episode with really selling me on the design of the USS Discovery. When we first saw Discovery, I just wasn't sure about this ship. It was actually the first time I've watched a Star Trek show and actually found myself not liking the ship but it did slowly grow on me as the show went on and I don't know, seeing Discovery in battle really sold me on that ship and I really came to appreciate Discovery alright, so I'm going to talk about a few kind of canon peeves that I did have for the show now first off, let me say that the Spore Drive was not one of them so on Discovery they have this new technology, it allows them to travel instantaneously to another point in space, it's fixable. Um, 
at some point they can establish that this technology is no longer available. I mean, Janeway would have loved a spore drive, and we know that she didn't use one to get home. Um, there's got to be a reason for that. Um, and basically, at some point, they can deal with this. They can make it no longer feasible or no longer possible. And the writers know they've got to do this, so, yeah. The spore drive was interesting. It added a, a new element to Star Trek we hadn't seen before. So I've got no problems with that. One thing that did bother me was the cloaking devices. Now, at the beginning, there's one particular sect of Klingons that have cloaking technology, and that technology is slowly dispersed amongst the other houses of the Klingon Empire. Of course, we know that the Klingons got cloaking technology from the Romulans uh, in exchange for giving the Romulans some D7 battlecruisers. Or do we? Is that actually canon? I started to think about this because I was so sure that is wrong. And then I started to think about it. Has it ever actually been officially established on screen that that is where the Klingons got their cloaking technology from? And I had to come to the conclusion that no. The episode, the Enterprise incident, doesn't outright say that the Romulans have given the Klingons cloaking technology in state of these ships. It may be somewhat implied when you look at the overall um, show, but it's not explicitly stated there. It is explicitly stated in the Star Trek The Next Generation technical journal, but that's not on-screen canon. So I'm finding that I actually have to reluctantly backpedal on this and say that, yeah, maybe this is okay. I did struggle a little bit with the concept of a visual reboot while maintaining canon in the Prime timeline. The writers have constantly said that this is the Prime Universe, and they've established with connections to Star Trek canon that that is the case. So, the visual reboot idea was kind of hard. And I'm not saying that I want everything to look like 1960s. And for that reason, if I was making this show, I, I just wouldn't have chosen this pre-original series setting. But the main part of that that I, I guess got to me, it was the holograms, the, the holographic communication. First of all, it didn't feel very Star Trek. It felt more Star Wars-y, you know. That's, that's what Star Wars does. But, but more than that, the way they did it, it just didn't make a lot of sense. In the first episode, Burnham is talking to a holographic Sarek. And he's walking around her room, and then at one point, he sits on the corner of a desk. That's absurd. That's really silly. Are we to believe that back on Vulcan in his house, there happens to be something in the exact same spot as her desk, and he happens to sit down on it? That's silly and not very logical. As I said, overall, I had a positive reaction to this show. I really enjoyed season one of Star Trek Discovery. It had some really good moments. I've talked about my favorite episodes. Uh, when it was good, it was really good. Okay, now let's talk about Season 2. The trailers for the show promised a big science fiction mystery that the crew of Discovery would have to solve. Mysterious red signals appearing in various parts of the galaxy. Yes, this was what I wanted. Some real space exploration. This is what Star Trek is about. I was intrigued by the idea of boldly going but not falling back on the planet of the week trope from the early days. 
and in a lot of ways, season two delivered on this. The other big thing was the inclusion of Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise onto the show. I was very excited about this. I've always liked Captain Pike as a character. Jeffrey Hunter's portrayal of him in the cage was great, and he had a real character arc over the course of that episode. That's the kind of character development we rarely, if ever, got from the original series. And Anson Mount didn't disappoint either. He took that iconic character that Hunter had created and added a whole new depth to him. The writers also worked hard to really explore new aspects of the character. Pike was a real bright spot for me. The first episode of the season also introduced us to Jet Reno. I like Jet. Her sassy, non-nonsense approach to life makes her kind of stand out in the Star Trek universe, and yet fit in quite well in this near TOS era. And when we get our first glimpse of the Red Angel, it's set up as a big mystery. Whatever it is, it's connected to Michael's adopted brother Spock. So the next episode takes us to New Eden, a planet on the far side of the Beta Quadrant, where we find a group of pre-warp humans. This episode gave us some classic TOS vibes, while at the same time very much fitting in with the ongoing serialised storyline. I don't mind them doing a bit of this, as long as it connects. And we get our first insight into Pike's status as a person of some faith. Then we take a detour back to Kronos, and see how Laurel and Tyler are doing trying to keep the United Klingon Empire together. This wasn't a bad Klingon story. Lots of political intrigue with a familiar and distinctly Klingon flavour. I wasn't a big fan of Tyler this season. I think he became more and more unlikable as the show went on. But I quite enjoyed his struggle to walk the tightrope between human and Klingon in this episode. It helped to give some real closure to the Klingon war arc, which I felt was resolved poorly at the end of season 1. The arrival of a truly ancient alien sphere nicely appealed to the classic Trek exploration that I was craving. This episode also developed Saru in an unexpected way, as we see him come near to death and then transform into a whole new type of Kelpian. I appreciated the touching moments between him and Michael in this episode, and yet I don't think it was earned. In the first seasons, Saru and Michael had been little more than rivals. I never saw the promised sibling relationship that we were promised in season 1. The stuff here in this episode was good, but it hadn't been built up prior to this like it should have been. Through all of this, we've been building this strange thing with Tilly and the spore-induced invisible friend May. This culminated in Tilly being sucked into the mycelial network on a mission to help the native spore species. All throughout the season, they seemed to be coming up with reasons why the spore drive could no longer be used, and then fixing them, so it could still be used. I found this very frustrating. We all knew that they had to do something to invalidate the drive, so that future Star Trek shows wouldn't have the technology to rely on. I found myself getting quite restless for them to just do it already. Quite a contrast to how I felt in Season 1. It wasn't so much that I needed them to invalidate the drive right now, but they kept on coming up with ways to do it and they're not taking them. This back and forth dance became tiresome very quickly. So they go in and rescue Tilly from the network and find none other than Hugh Colber, their dead crewmate. But he's still alive in Mushroomland. This was all a bit weird. First of all, 
I found Hugh's death in season one a shocking but satisfying moment. The showrunners kept promising that this is a modern show, people die, don't get too attached. But it seems they couldn't bear to let any of these characters go. They kept bringing them all back. I felt that bringing Dr. Colbert back kind of lessened and weakened the impact and power of that moment when he died. And I would have been quite happy for them to have just let the character stay dead. And the way they brought him back was so convoluted. The way that they explained that his soul or life force or whatever was alive in the mycelial network after his death was very tenuous and hard to swallow. However, I forgive all of this because they did something with it. We get Culber back, but he spends the rest of the season coming to terms with what happens to him. This isn't a TNG-style reset button. First, the idea that his entire body has been rebuilt from the ground up is interesting. Old scars are gone because his body never received those injuries. Every molecule in this body is brand new. That's got to mess a person up, thinking about that. He's questioning, am I the same person? I have the memories of Hugh Culber, but am I him? These are interesting questions. And it has a believable impact on his relationship with Stamets. He doesn't just want to fall back into that because he has memories of being in that relationship. He has to figure out who he is and what he actually feels. And it took him the rest of the season to do that. This was good character development, and they let it play out naturally over a reasonable amount of time. This is the kind of consequences I always longed for in Voyager, but never got. It was very well done here. Then we get some exploration of the Kelpians, and it's interesting stuff. The crew face some hard ethical questions. By helping the Kelpians go through metamorphosis into their next stage, are they condemning the Ba'ul? But I thought it was all wrapped up too quickly, too neatly. The season arc goes full steam ahead from here on. Michael finally finds Spock. We learn that he has dyslexia, which I thought was an interesting addition to the character, giving Spock, arguably the most intelligent character in all Star Trek, a learning difficulty, was an interesting and thought-provoking move. Meanwhile, we learn that there is something in the future working against us that is connected to this whole Red Angel thing, and Arium gets compromised by it. If Memory Serves is probably my favourite episode of this season, not just for the nostalgic connection to the cage, although I'd be lying if I said that didn't play a part. But we get some good exploration of Spock and Burnham's past relationship. We get to see the Talosians and Talos IV again, and we get to see Vina. How cool was that? And she even gets to have a reunion with Pike, who after all this time still isn't over his feelings for her. The recreation of this classic planet with modern cinematography and effects was lovingly done. I was delighted we got to hear that howling wind sound and the blue plants that sing it. That moment in the cage where they found those flowers and touched them and hear the sound diminish, that was a defining moment of Star Trek for me. Because that shows the wonder of exploration, the small but incredible things that can be found on other planets. And the way the crew reacted, Spock's smile matched our smile. The wonder was enough to pull some emotion out of our much less mature Spock. And then we get Project Daedalus. The death of Arium was very emotional, 
and on my recent rewatch, I got quite choked up. But it could have felt so much more emotional if we'd actually known the character before this episode. I mean, until this episode, we didn't even know what she was. At first, we were told she was a robot. Then we were told she was an augmented alien, and then an augmented human. Finally, in this episode, we learn that she was an average human woman who nearly died in a shuttle crash just after her wedding, and had to be severely augmented to survive, to the extent that she had to choose which memories to archive and which to delete. This would have made a fascinating character, but we got too little too late. But I do love how the next episode begins with her funeral, another thing they'd have never done on TOS or TNG. Now this is where some aspects of the plot started to go a little off the rails. Discovery can be great at setup, but it's not always good at paying off those setups. I felt that season one of Picard suffered from this problem a little bit as well. The mystery of this strange force out there leaving us signals, and the Red Angel was compelling. But when we found out the Red Angel was a time-travelling suit with super advanced technology, it was still interesting. But then we find it's just Michael. Except it's kind of not, it's her mother, except in the end it kind of is. This is symptomatic of the weird protagonist problem this show has. The protagonist of the show is just the science officer of the ship. She's not the captain, she's just a member of the crew. So to justify her being the protagonist, her being the star, we have to make everything be about her. She's the most important person, it's all about her. I wasn't the only fan who found this a little predictable and tiresome. But the worst thing was, this suit isn't from the distant future made by an alien race. It's just experimental Section 31 technology. Apparently Michael's parents were able to build this incredible suit with super advanced technology that can do anything. And that was quite a letdown to me. It really didn't ring true. Anyway, they capture the angel and discover Michael's mum in the suit. She's been trying and failing to prevent the destruction of all sentient life in the future. What's causing that? It's not some mysterious alien threat. No, it's just Section 31's control AI program that they use to assess threats. Ho-hum. I don't know, maybe it's the fact that I'm a computer programmer, but I find it hard to buy artificial intelligence as this amazing villain. Ultron didn't work for me either. And yet the Terminator and the Matrix did. So maybe it's all about execution. And that brings me to Section 31. I love Section 31. I love what they did with it in Deep Space Nine. And I don't mind what they did with it in Enterprise. But I really disliked what they did with it in Discovery. They kind of ruined it, to be honest. It's supposed to be a super secret intelligence service that quietly does the dirty work in the background. In Discovery, they have ships, headquarters, and even recognisable black badges and everyone knows they exist, even civilians like Amanda. Alex Kurtzman said at one point that they were telling the story of how Section 31 grew to become the organisation we know in Deep Space Nine. But at the end of this season, we see an admiral tell Tyler that Section 31 needs more transparency, which is the exact opposite direction from where Canon needs it to go. I actually wish they'd just left Section 31 alone in this show and not touched them. That would have been preferable to doing them so badly. But that brings us to Through the Valley of Shadows, 
where Pike goes down to Borath to get his hands on a time crystal. I love this episode because it adds something really interesting to Pike's character. He actually flashes forward and sees what's in store for his future. He knows he's going to become severely injured and disabled by saving the cadet's life. He sees himself in that chair from the menagerie. Wow, so he knows that's in his future, and he willingly embraces it in order to save the galaxy. What a true hero he is. And the look on his face as he realises what's in store for him. What amazing acting from Anton Mount. So fantastic. I love this. This sets up some interesting things for the future in Strange New Worlds, as Pike has to come to terms with his fate, knowing he cannot change it. So that brings us to the epic two-part finale, Such Sweet Sorrow. There's no denying that this was an exciting two hours of television. Michael has determined that the only way to save the galaxy is to take Discovery 950 years into the future, where Control can no longer get a hold of the sphere data. But Control is on its way to try to stop them. A massive battle ensues. I noticed that they chose to have lots of shuttles and fighters. This made the battle very exciting, but it didn't feel very Star Trek. Star Trek uses naval-style battles. Could that have been done as exciting as this? I don't know. Anyway, it was nice to see the Enterprise. And if I squint at the screen, I can convince myself that this is the bridge of the TOS Enterprise. Just really shiny. <laughs> anyway, the battle was a feast for the eyes. Most of the Discovery crew decide to go with Michael into the future. This is very touching. But I don't know how much I'd buy this. Tilly? Yeah, she'd follow Michael in a heartbeat. Maybe even Saru. But all of these people? Jet, for example? I'm not convinced she's that close to Michael to want to do this. It all felt a bit unbelievable. Another thing I feel the show hasn't earned. But I guess they wanted to keep as many characters as they could going into Season 3. Michael has to go back through the time loop and set the red signals that we've seen all through the season, fulfilling the time loop. And Admiral Cornwell dies. That was sad. I really liked Cornwell. But we might be seeing her again, since we're jumping into the future. So I guess it makes sense for her to go out in a blaze of glory. But it means we won't get to see her in Strange New Worlds. There's a touching moment between Michael and Spock, where she basically tells him to find Kirk and McCoy. It was a bit on the nose, but I liked it. Giorgio manages to kill Leland, whose body is inhabited by nanites and controlled by, well, control. Some have argued that at this point, Michael no longer needed to go into the future. But that wasn't the only copy of Control. There are a bunch of other ships out there with the Control software installed on them. Goodness knows how many other copies are out there. It took them weeks to clean it all up. So they sail off into the future. This was a bold move, and I think a good one. The writers have realised, as we knew all along, that the pre-TOS time frame was not the right setting for this show, especially for the kinds of stories they wanted to tell. Now the show is moving forward in a completely unexplored corner of the Star Trek timeline. The far future. They can make up whatever stuff they want. It was a good decision. So after Discovery goes through the wormhole, the Enterprise returns to Earth and the crew are interrogated by an Admiral. We keep seeing his face from behind, all weird angles that 
cover his face. We never actually see his face. I took this to mean that he would be revealed to be someone important. But it never happened. So I'm really confused by that. Spock tells the Admiral they must never speak of Discovery, Michael, or the Spore Drive ever again. The Admiral says he'll take it under advisement. It's still not clear to me exactly what Spock's argument was for this. It's all a bit strange. All this time, I've been waiting for them to explain why the Spore Drive can never be used again. It turns out their plan was rather to simply move it into the future and classify it. They still want to be able to use the Spore Drive in Season 3, apparently. So the only reason nobody uses Spore Drive technology in the 23rd or 24th century is that it's been conveniently forgotten. This is hard to swallow. So many people knew the crew of Discovery. So many people knew of the Spore Drive. It was a vital tool in fighting the Klingon War. It's not going to become forgotten like that. This was a pretty weak way to deal with it, in my opinion. But what's done is done. So now we look forward to Season 3. We get to explore a brand new point in time in the Star Trek universe. And I'm excited for the possibilities. I've heard some theories about what exactly has happened to the universe in the meantime. It's pretty compelling. I think this is going to be an interesting season. But Season 2 ends with some mystery. We know Michael made it, but we don't know where she ended up, what it's like. Instead, we leave the show with the Enterprise, Pike, Spock, and Number One. This final scene leads us nicely into the Strange New World show that is underway. I'm also looking forward to that one. This pretty much wraps up my thoughts. Next episode, we'll delve into the first episode of Discovery Season 3. I look forward to sharing it with you. In the meantime, live long and prosper. And I'll see you somewhere in Nerd Heaven. <laughs>